name is Josh Tate and welcome back to the Bold Love Podcast. You're on Twitter, right? I don't know about you, but I love to scroll through Twitter. News, articles, breaking news, funny videos. I can stay on there for way too long, but over a period of time here, especially recently, it's become really exhausting and disheartening, to be honest. All the tension and fights and just hateful talk for really useless reasons and useless arguments, which is one reason why I restarted the Bold Love Podcast. We needed a place to escape the divisiveness. And what we wanted to do here, and Pastor Bob does an amazing job of doing this, which is really modeling civil conversation, even with those that don't think like we do or believe like we do or have the same background as us. So this season, season three, themed unlikely, this will focus on moving from a conversation about other faiths, like these isolated posts that you see on Twitter about somebody, but to a conversation with other faiths, a conversation that allows us to hear from people that are different than us, from different faith backgrounds, from different worldviews, different ideas. And what this is going to do is build relationship and shape the way we communicate to people that are different than us. So whether you're a religious leader, like a pastor or imam or rabbi, or just an everyday person of faith like myself, this is your chance to understand how to communicate and what the realities of faith in the public square is in the 21st century. And today we get to have the honor to talk with Christian authors. Christine Kane. Now, Christine has a heart for reaching people, for strengthening leadership, and being a champion for the cause of justice. With her husband, Nick, they founded an anti-human trafficking organization called A21 Campaign, and they also founded Propel Women, which is an organization designed to celebrate women's passions and purpose and potential. And you can get her most recent book, How Did I Get Here? It's available now on Amazon and other locations. And actually, Christine will be one of the keynote speakers during the Global Faith Forum Unlikely Conference here in Dallas-Fort Worth in March of 2022. So this is such a delightful conversation and we hope you see value out of this discussion. So I want to go ahead and welcome the host of the Bold Love Podcast along with our guest, Christine Kane. Here is Pastor Bob Roberts, Jr. I am excited to be with a real live Lady Preacher. Oh my gosh, I'm going to hell for sure now. I watch her on television. I listen to her on podcasts. I even tried to get her to come preach at my church once. And she is coming to preach at our church, and I can't wait. Uh, But Christine Kane, wow, what an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you. Bob, it's my honor, and I particularly love how you just dive right in. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Life's too short. That's it. Let's have fun. Let's not warm up. Let's just crank it up. Let's just crank it up. So you're a lady preacher, and you're also head of a very significant NGO that rescues women. I mean, preacher humanitarian. What, What is that all about? How do you wind up doing those two things? Well, for me, they're like two sides of the same coin. Um, I think one actually leads to the other. And um, so so for me, so much of, uh, you know, we talk about preaching is, is an overflow of what Jesus has done in my own life. And then through A21, helping to rescue the victims of human trafficking, again, is almost, uh, if you trace the work of the Lord in my life right from my birth, um, it almost seems like, oh, wow, of course, this is what she would be doing. You know, it really is. Uh, God used Jeremiah 1 to call me to preach 
Before I formed you in your mother's belly, I knew you. I ordained you a prophet. It's fascinating how God has these divine plans for us. And if we'll just chill, people freak out all the time. Oh, God, what's your will for my life? Is if, you know, I'm going to make the wrong decision and I'm going to die and go to hell. Come on. You're trying to do something God wants you to do. He is orchestrating. I've learned that God's will is more than a process than a specific answer in a moment that leads us. Now, tell me, I want to know a little bit about your life story. How does that happen? Are you a, a preacher's kid and you just naturally uh, followed in your dad or mom's footsteps? How does this all happen? I'm laughing. I'm smiling. I wish people could see as you're actually saying that because I think it's hilarious. Okay. I, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. So, of course, I, I'm from the great Southland of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, Jesus That's right. in Australia. I love Sydney. It's a great city. It's a great city. And I grew up the daughter of Greek immigrants from Alexandria in Egypt. My parents are from Alexandria. When King Farouk got overthrown in the 50s, uh, my parents had to flee like most of, they were Greek Orthodox, obviously to be Greek is to be Orthodox. And so um, they had to flee um, and came to Australia. And so I grew up in that kind of environment, very staunch Greek Orthodox home. And, you know, for anyone that understands uh, the children of Greek immigrants or any pretty much any immigrants really anywhere, we are more Greek than the Greeks in Greece because for our parents, um, they just, you know, so we were stuck in 1950s Greek culture, even though I was born in 66 and raised in the 70s and 80s in Australia. If you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, that is 100% my big fat <laughs> Greek life. I mean, there is Windex in every room and every <laughs> word is Greek. I didn't speak English until I was five. Greek is my first language when my parents uh, didn't want us to understand what they were sp saying at you know, the dinner table. They would either speak Arabic or French or Italian because if you came from Alexandria, you spoke a minimum of four or five languages. And so I just grew up um, in that kind of uh, culture. So, no, no, I, I like to say that, in fact, I am a Greek Orthodox mother's nightmare. That's actually <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I am anything, but um, this is what my mother aspired for me to be doing in my life. <laughs> so, so how did this happen? You know, there, there's uh, obviously like it all works in our journey with the Lord. It was a process. Um, you know, uh, let me just backtrack a little bit and give you like a Cliff Notes version of my life, um, Bob. You know, I was um, born obviously in Sydney, Australia, uh, you know, grew up in the poorest zip code in my state uh, in very typical government housing, immigrants kind of housing. That, that That's sort of the, the normal story. Very marginalised Australians. In the, I grew up in the 1970s. I was born in 1966. Um, there was a lot of just racism against Greeks and Italians in particular. I mean, the largest Greek population outside of Greece is in Melbourne, Australia. So the huge Greek community in Australia, but Back in the 60s and 70s, there was just a lot of racism towards um, Greeks and Italians in particular. And so I was very marginalised. We grew up in a very, very Greek bubble. And um, also I was, um, you know, the the victim of, of childhood sexual abuse, not from anyone in my immediate uh, family, but from people that my parents allowed to come into our home that they should have been able to trust and proved extremely untrustworthy. So I, I was a young woman 
you know, full of shame and guilt and, and condemnation. And, you know, Bob, back in the 1970s, 1980s, nobody in Australia was talking about abuse. I didn't even have language to define yeah. what had happened to me. So like most women of my generation, you buried it, you and you just kind of went on with life. So um, and then and sort of to add just another twist to that, and two weeks before my 33rd birthday, I, I got a phone call from my brother, George. Uh, of course, when you're Greek, all your brothers are George, Nico, Spiro, Con, you know, <laughs> just the way that it is. Um, and my brother, George, I was crying and said to me he had gotten a letter from the Australian government to say that he'd been adopted. And I thought he was joking because, you know, when you're growing up, you always tell your siblings that, you know, you're adopted, we're not related. And so suddenly he's telling me this thing and I, I didn't believe him. I said, you know, just call the government. They've made a mistake. Anyway, it went on to he called me back about 15 minutes later sobbing and said, Chris, they told me the name of my biological mother, my biological father. They have a whole file on my life. My father had died when we were 19. And so my mother at this point was 61, home alone. My brother was going to, he said, I'm going home to confront mum. I don't know if you know anything about Greeks, Bob, but Greeks are volatile. They act first, think later. I mean, we are just- Sounds awful. like Texans to me. <laughs> So very much like that. I jump in my car, race to my mother's house. I walk in and right in that moment that my brother's giving my mother this piece of paper from the government, my mum just starts to weep. I felt, Bob, like I was watching a movie. I, oh. I thought, oh, my word, this is true. I mean, this is my brother was 35. This is a 35-year-old family secret. I mean, there were enough secrets in my family, but this one was like shocking. My mother was weeping and just said, I'm so sorry, George. All of the adoptions in Australia in the 1960s, they were all closed adoptions. And so we never thought you would find out. The final thing I promised your father before he died was that I would never tell you. I tore up all of the paper. I mean, you could just imagine. It was a big fat Greek yeah. moment. There's all the emotion. I go to the kitchen. What does a Greek girl do in, in you know times of trauma? I mean, you just think I'm going to cook. You know, food is the answer to life, the universe and everything. I'll make some baklava. I'll make some moussaka. I go to the kitchen. I start cooking. My mother walks in and says, Christina, of course, she's talking to me in Greek, you know, since we're telling the truth today, do you want to know the whole truth? And in that moment, I mean, I turned around two weeks before my 33rd birthday, I just went, I've been adopted too. And mm. um, it was just shocking. I mean, it is a shocking thing at 33 years old to find out you're not who you thought you were. And wow. that everything in that moment, um, Bob, you know, everything, every fact that I thought to be true about my life changed, you know, in that moment. And so it was a, a very um, sobering thing. About a year later, I got my documents from the government, which meant I got, you know, my birth certificate. Again, a strange thing to get a birth certificate when you thought you had one for over three decades. Yeah. Um, my doctor's reports, my social work reports. And, and when I received my documents, my, my actual birth certificate, it says it has a category. It says child's name typed in next to that category child's name is literally typed in the word unnamed number 2508 of 1966. And so just the shocking mm. news in that, that, that I didn't even have a name, that I was a number. And I think, um, you know, you weave in that here I was abandoned in a hospital in Australia, left unnamed, unwanted, adopted, abused, 
um, you know, this story can go one of two ways. Either, um, you know, you can end up with a, a life just full of destruction and loss and grief and pain and all of the things that come with it, or um, you can allow God to take that and weave together all of those broken pieces into a tapestry of his grace. And he can allow my pain to be used to help to give other people a future, which by the grace of God is what happened in my life. Wow. So did you accept Christ at the age of 35? No, it was before that because um, at school in Australia, you had compulsory religious education when I was growing up. It doesn't exist anymore, but it, it was there at the time. And there were only two categories. You could go to Protestant or Catholic. And so, of course, because I was Greek Orthodox, uh, we had to go to Catholic because, you know, we weren't right. Protestant. They, they didn't have anything to other category to put you in. And so, but um, my friends were, of course, all in the Protestant one, and there was only a very few of us in the Catholic. So, I used to sneak out of the Catholic religious education and I'd sneak into the Protestant um, uh, class <laughs> because it sort of made sense. You know, I, I had a lot of the other, you know, I, I grew up for um, almost 18 years of my life going to a, a Greek Orthodox church where the service is a three-hour liturgy in ancient Greek, which nobody yeah. speaks. And so, you know, I just remember as a kid, I always believed in God that I certainly had no personal relationship with him. But I remember as a kid, I'd sit in church and I'd look at all the icons on the wall and I would think, Bob, man, I want to get my picture on the wall, like all these people. <laughs> and then I found out that you like had to die to do that. So, I, you know, that killed that. Um, <laughs> but I always had this sense, I could even say as a, as a really little girl, that um, I, I somehow wanted to work for God. I didn't know what that meant. I thought I would be like a Mother Teresa. That would be the only framework I had that you would be a, a nun. Um, and so, but I was so broken from all of those things that had happened to me and, and had developed many, many patterns of destructive behavior, just a lot of very poor relational choices and, and was just a mess. Like there's no other way. But at, when I was 14 in Australia, um, a guy from the Sydney Anglicans, I think, he, he um, was a part of this thing called the God Squad. So they were all like radically saved bikers. And they all came into school one day for this religious education class on their Harley Davidson. I mean, they were tatted up from head to toe. <laughs> this dude, John Smith was his name, um, presented the gospel in a way that made sense for me. I, I can't think that I had ever really understood um, what Jesus Christ had done for us and that not only did he give us, which is powerful, forgiveness for our past, but it was the first time I understood that you could have a brand new life today here on earth, not, not just fire insurance for when you die, um, which I needed plenty of that because my life was such a mess, but that I could have a brand new life here on earth. Um, for some reason that resonated so deeply with me wow. and um, I went and that was, now again, it's a journey because my life was still such a mess for seven years after that, but it was the first time that I went back at lunchtime. They invited us back if you wanted to know more. And it was the first time that I remember I prayed a prayer, which we would term now the sinner's prayer that I meant with all of my heart and I do believe changed the course of my eternity, but it certainly didn't really help my practical life here on earth for um, a long time because I had no discipleship. My parents would not allow me to go to a Protestant church or to go to any discipleship program. I mean, in fact, 
Um, my parents, when I brought the Bible home, now you've got to imagine, I'm a Greek Orthodox kid. Uh, you don't read the, and I'm a woman. So you do not read the Bible. The priest reads the Bible. And so, and I didn't even know you really could. I slept on it, Bob, for about the first six weeks when I got it. I thought sort of by osmosis, it would go into my brain. So I put it <laughs> and slept on it. I, I didn't even really know you could read this thing. I didn't understand the power of it. Um, it was Almost, I mean, I, I use this language, but it was something almost like a good luck charm because in in my church, you kissed the priest's ring and you kissed the Bible. You you didn't read it, you kissed it, you know. And so yeah. uh, that was kind of my understanding. I mean, I certainly revered it as a holy book. I had no context of what that really meant, though. But my parents um, were, you know, for a Greek Orthodox, um, you might know this, you know, I lead a church in, in Greece, in Thessaloniki, you know, even to this day, as you and I are recording this podcast, if a Greek young person converts under the age of 18 without their parents' approval, um, I could go to jail now, like to today, because it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's such a big deal. And yeah. so I remember with my parents, um, they, they brought the Greek Orthodox Archbishop of Athens and the Greek Orthodox Archbishop of Sydney, um, and I had to go through six weeks of uh, de-brainwashing classes um, because they were just so concerned about what had happened yeah. to me, which you would, you know, I, I get sure. it a lot more now right. than I did then. Yeah. Um, and so there was just a lot, you know, for a lot of years there was a lot of uh, confusion. And then truly it was at 21 years old, I was on a balcony in Zurich, and I just, it was there that I could say that I just truly surrendered. I, I had a glimpse of maybe what that cost would be with my family. And, you know, when you're an immigrant kid and this is your whole community, this means everything. I mean, it, yeah. it costs everything. And so I knew then I made that decision. I came back, a friend invited me to a church and um, I got, you know, um, water baptized. My, my friend Beth Moore laughs when I use the word water baptized because she's <laughs> is there, but well, you know, I'm at a Pentecostal church, so <laughs> so there's whatever. So, um, and you know, when I when I was water baptized for my family, they they didn't speak to me for several years. That was oh, literally wow. the language was you have committed the unforgivable sin. I mean, that was when they tore up my. Um, my Greek Orthodox baptism. So it was, it, it, it was um, tantamount to committing the unforgivable sin to, to then be baptized. And I remember I kept saying to them, I, I knew nothing of theology, um, but I had encountered Jesus. And I remember just standing in my parents' living room, tears streaming down my face. I didn't even have a framework to put this in, but I just kept saying to them, but I've met Jesus. I've met Jesus. I didn't know what else to say. And, um, it was just, I, I didn't know how to reconcile it, but it was very costly. You know, um, some people look at my life to get today and I think I just smile. Um, if they use a language like influencer or celebrity, I just smile internally because I'm like, oh, you have no idea. Number one, yeah. I didn't even know a woman could do what I'm doing today. Number two, I didn't, um, it cost me everything. Like it cost me my entire Greek community. It cost me um, friends. And I thought that was going to be my life because I had never been exposed 
um, to what would be very normal in American evangelical culture. They're, you know, even in Australia, uh, especially you go back to the 1980s, you could count the Christians on one hand. I mean, it yeah. was they're so yeah. secular. What much of America is going through now, many of us from other nations almost roll our eyes and go, really? Right. I'm, glad, I'm glad you all caught up because we grew up in a very secular, humanistic postmodern, post-Christian world yeah. way back then. So we had to navigate what it is to be a Jesus follower. With it. That was our normal. So when you got saved, nobody was rolling out the red carpet. There was no preaching circuit. There was that's no- good. This yes. is wonderful. You, you know, uh, yesterday I was about to go up to the pulpit to preach, and a young man came over right before I went up, and he said, I want to give my life to Jesus. And and my first response was, where's a staff member real quick? Didn't see anyone. Then I thought, okay, I'm going to tell him to wait till I get through preaching. I thought, no, I can't do this. What if the Lord comes back? And so literally his life was really messed up. And so I told him, I said, I said, so let me ask you this. Are you following Jesus because you want Jesus? Or are you following Jesus because you wanted to fix all your mess? I said, until you really follow him because you want him. Don't waste his time. Don't waste my time. But if you really want to follow him and you're ready to pay the price, see, I love that. I I think we're missing that in America, Christine. We've turned it in, pray this prayer, get dunked, be a nice person. It's all over. And the stories of the people in the Bible and church history that radically turned the world upside down, it was a costly decision to follow Jesus. You said something else that really stuck with me. One of my spiritual fathers once taught me, You, you said, I encountered Jesus. And, and, you know, I work with Jews and Muslims and Hindus, and I'm friends with the uh, Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Pope. Uh, uh, he's, he's my friend, uh, Theophilus, who has the keys and, uh, to the church in Jerusalem. But the reality is you cannot talk anybody into faith in following Jesus or out of faith. It's the Holy Spirit that draws. There's more than apologetics to this stuff. And I was my buddy, Majid, the imam that I work with all over the world. You know, he's always challenging me and I love him in a good way. And I said, you know, Majid, this may be true. That may be true. But here's the reality. Something happened inside of me and I could never reject this Jesus that and I love that. It's like we talk about church and let's reach lost people and let's do the Sunday thing. And it's as if the Holy Spirit somehow is disconnected from our evangelism, the drawing and the revelation. I love that. So so I'm curious, how do you go from a 21, I've encountered Jesus person, I guess you begin to grow and then do you start preaching? I mean, what what happens? (laughs) No, again, it's, you know, the the church that... um, I was invited to, I mean, I had no idea. I'd never been into an environment like that. Um, It was, uh, you know, almost like a a startup, just a a couple of years old. And um, it was a, I didn't know, I wouldn't have, I would not have known the phrase Pentecostal church. I wouldn't have even known what that meant, you know, but, um, but it was a place where the spirit of God, now I wouldn't have even known that language back then, but then obviously was the, the spirit of God was alive. And we were full of people that nobody else wanted. So it was the the Greek immigrants like me. It was, um, you know, uh, people of colour. It was all of us that were from the Housing Commission, government housing um, places. We I love were, it. We were not the educated ones. We So it was awesome because 
you don't really know that there's rules and regulations and you're, you're outside the system anyway because the system doesn't want you. And I never knew there was a system. I was just with a bunch of people. And here, I know this is almost cliche, but we were once lost and we got found. We were <laughs> blind and now we saw. That was about all there was. I wouldn't have even known to say to you, Bob, oh, I had an evangelistic gift on my life. But anybody that knew me and to this day would say that, Anybody I met, I would just tell about this Jesus because I had encountered Jesus and I finished my degree. I don't even know how I finished my degree because I was like one of those raving lunatics. I was <laughs> all about Jesus. And, um, but I knew that I didn't know anything. And there was a, a Bible college connected to my church. I laugh. I use that language so loosely now. I just finished my master's at Wheaton. I mean, just last week, I finished my last exam just the day before we did this. All right. And I'm laughing because it would not even rate as a Bible college. But let me just say for where I was at, it was exactly what I needed. It, it was a lot more of a, a practical internship more than a Bible college. Um, but I realized I'm in this world where for the first time I'm in an environment mostly with, obviously with fully with Protestants and mostly Anglo-Saxons. I'd never, I'd been in such a little cultural bubble Um that I, number one, I didn't really even culturally understand them and they didn't culturally understand me. And it seemed like there was not, uh, this is something I realized early on. I thought, do you have to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant to follow Jesus? But I, I remember thinking no. that and because they so didn't understand me. And, you know, you come from an Orthodox background today, especially with our work with A21, we work with the Orthodox Church in Greece. We work with the, you know, like we are, are, are such good friends, but, and I wish in my early days, I had people that understood the breadth of the church a lot more. But um, especially you come in the 80s, I think back then in the Protestant church, well, certainly this stream of the Protestant church, it was sort of very anti-Catholic, anti-everything. And so um, they didn't know what to do with people like us, except other than try to turn them into people like them. And so it was like a, a really unique experience. But what happened was I kept bringing people to church like every week. Anyone would say the most amount of people would be back then. My name was Christine Karyophilus, a good Greek name. <laughs> Christine Karyophilus would have rows of people because I would just pick up anyone anywhere I went and I'd be like, come, come and meet. I was like the woman at the well. Come and see this man who told me awesome? everything about me. And I would just bring them. And then I would be in this. Um, Bible college and just volunteering at anything because I knew nothing and I saw it all. I, I didn't, I, there was no career path. It was never that I was thinking, oh, I'm going to become a preacher or I'm going to become, a, I didn't even know that that was even possible. It was just, I'm bringing people to Jesus. There is nothing greater you could do in life. And then I was learning. I mean, I wouldn't have known Genesis from Revelation. I didn't know who Abraham was. I wouldn't have known anything. And so it gave me a little bit of context. I'm not saying much, but a little bit. And um, I just out of that I just went to everything. Every time the church doors were open, I was one of those kids because I knew nothing and it was a lifeline to me. And I would just go and do anything like so church cleanup day, whatever. So, and, and this is what I say to people. This is how God uses you. You just turn up when nobody else does. I once went there to- There you go. And the youth pastor said, we're going to have a church cleanup day next Tuesday. Well, here's the deal. Out of a couple of hundred kids in the youth group, I was the only one that went. And so that day, the assistant youth pastor, he looks down 
and there's no other options. And this is what I say when God has no other options. So he just uses you because that's it. And he says to me, oh, you're Christine Karyophilus, aren't you? And I go, yeah. He goes, you go to Sydney Uni. You just finished a degree in psychology, of which I said, no, my degree's in English and economic history. So basically I can read golden books and count to 10. Like I don't do that. <laughs> um, I just got a, he said, I just got a government grant for a youth centre. And I said, what, this is my whole call to ministry, everyone. This is the deal. What's a youth center? He said, I don't know, but we're about to do a missions trip across through Africa for six weeks. And when I come back, um, I just need you to do something with this grant and start a youth center. With that, he threw, he was up the top of the stairs. He threw a pager. This is old school. Some people listening to this podcast won't even know what a pager is. He threw a pager at me and, and, um, And he said, that's it. That's the youth center. And I knew nothing. And because I was like barely saved, like, I mean, barely, I I didn't know which way was up. I I still had to read the index to know how to get to Genesis. I knew nothing. I'm like, okay. So because of my university education, I thought, okay, what do you do? So I just went and visited every youth center in my city. Now, of course, they're all government run. I didn't know this language. I didn't know there was secular and sacred. I didn't. So I just went, interviewed everyone. I mean, run by all the fringe groups that you could think of, because that's what was who was running youth centers. And so I just thought, this is awesome. Let's work with at-risk. This is where I learned the language. This is where we work with at-risk young people. Let's find young people that need um, English as a second language. Let's let's build a bridge. I mean, I've just done four years of evangelism and leadership at Wheaton. And I thought, oh, this is what I was doing in the 1990s. And nobody gave me language for it, except um, they would come. Sometimes people from different traditions, including yours, would come to the youth center that we started. And they would be so angry with me for playing secular music. I didn't know it was anything bad. They (laughs) They were missing the fact that there was 270 kids from the streets, coming into the youth centre for relationship, for English as a second language classes, um, for, you know, anti-bullying classes, like whatever need. I would just find a need. I didn't realise then I was building a theology of ministry. I just thought we want to reach people with Jesus, build a bridge, find a need, meet it. That seems to be what Jesus did in the Gospels, and then earn the right to build credibility with them, to be able to introduce them to what has given you life, what has given you hope, what has given you purpose, and invite them into that story. And if they don't want to step into that story, there's still people. And they still need English as a second language, and they still need food, and they still need education, and they still need training, and they still need a good quality of life and housing. So without realizing it, the Lord protected me because he kept me in this bubble of starting a community-based youth center. So I thought you get saved. I thought this is what the natural progression is. And then you go in and you meet practical needs um, and then you build relationships with people. And if it arises, you earn the right to invite them into what has changed your life. Um, And that was kind of like, like what happened. And out of that, I got invited. The youth center grew exponentially. And so I was invited. I didn't realize God, what God was preparing me for because 
the mainstream people were just like, um, what is what is she doing? You know, she's she's doing all this secular stuff. But I didn't even know that it was secular. I just thought it's we live, we all live in one world. There's one planet, and um, this is where where you find people. You find people in the world that apparently God loves is what I thought. And so I would be invited by the um, different. Um, branches of society. I'd be invited by the Rotary Clubs in Australia, the education department. We started programs in schools. I love this. I would speak to business meetings and um, encourage them to donate. This is where I learned how to fundraise. I didn't know any of this. That I just thought that's what you did. So in the morning, we would go to prayer meetings from 6am to 9am and we would believe God for open doors. And then I would get um, interviews with business owners and I would speak at business things. And then I would be invited by the government to go down to Canberra, which is kind of like your DC here in America. Um, And I would speak to the prime minister, to government advisors about youth policy. I had no idea in those 1990s that God would be preparing me to lead what has become, by the grace of God, one of the largest anti-trafficking organizations in the world. I had no idea. And it I came just, out of that. Is that it right? Was, it came out of all of it? So, yeah, because in 2008 is when A21 started, but by then, uh, from 1990 to 1996, I ran what became um, Hills District Youth Service, and I would travel around the country. I would speak in high schools and I, about uh, different things. That's where I learned to connect with unsafe people. People go, Christine, how can you speak at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium to 65,000 people at the Passion Conference? I go, that's easy. They're Christians. I learned how to speak to 200 unsaved boys in a boys high school in Australia when then nobody had to come That's and awesome. be there. That's where I, I did not realize. People go, where did you learn to preach? Um, Australian high schools when nobody had to listen to me and yet I would hold a, an assembly full of people. Um, and that's where I learned to communicate. I didn't know God was preparing me to preach. I just was in schools and um, speaking about different things and, you know, whatever the issue would be, bullying or abuse, or, you know, I, I would speak about whatever issue the school wanted me. I would build seminars around that and then raise finance from the business sector to be able to take these uh, programs to schools. Well, today everyone sees what I do. We fill arenas with different events we do for women or whatever. Well, I learned to do all that back then when I never even knew that's what I was learning. It was just, it was kind of old school. I would say this is like a different version of the old school tent revivals. You didn't know what to do. So you just kind of pulled up somewhere. You go, what do you need? Drop the side of the truck and let's go. And also for the Pentecostal side of me, that's to me, the Holy Spirit working in my life simultaneously. Um, I never had to go to theology classes about it. It was desperation. I couldn't do it in my own strength. It was the the gift of desperation is awesome. It taught me how to be an evangelist and it taught me the utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. See, for me, Bob, my Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not the Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. So that changes some things. You know, like when you have, I I wasn't realizing that I was formulating a theology around the triune God just because it was like, now I've got all the language all these decades later. But the Lord, I think by keeping us on the fringes, um, made us, uh, we would just read what was in the Scripture and I wasn't educated enough back then to know that you weren't supposed to believe it. And, and I'm glad you weren't. <laughs> you know, there, there's, a, there's a couple of things I'm listening to you talk about that just really stick out in my mind. Number one, you're going after people that other people have written off. 
Yeah. Uh, my dad pastored a little church, uh, First Baptist Lindale, when I was growing up. And David Wilkerson, one Sunday, showed up at the church. And he had all of these kids that were strung out on drugs that were getting off drugs. And he was there because my dad's a phenomenal Bible teacher. But one of the reasons that, that he brought him there, he wanted him to hear the word of God. And we were nervous. What's this Pentecostal Assembly of God guy doing at our church? But the reality is he impacted us because all these people that you never thought would follow Jesus, they did. And they'd sit in the back of the church with their hands raised, you know, you were, you can speak in tongues under your breath, but man, you raise your hands in a Baptist church in Lindell. Are you kidding? But they did. It impacted us. So I think, hey, here's good news, Christine. You're in line with good church history because think of what St. Francis did. Same thing. Think of what Wesley did. Same thing. Think of what Finney did. Same thing. You're also doing something we teach our church planners. We tell them the grid that you operate on is not the church, it's the society. And the biggest mistake we make is we really, we, we say we're going to go start churches. We really don't. We start a worship service. And the way we plant churches out of our little network is you're going to first serve the city. And so it's, it's real funny. I just got a call last week, the new ambassador of Vietnam and the new chief political officer, the new ones are all coming to the U.S., and they set up a meeting where they want to fly down and, and come to our church and, and let the church members know. Now, these are communists, but we've worked there for 30 years. And, you know, I graduated from Fuller, had my D-men in missions. And, you know, you can, can't go to Vietnam. It's a closed country. It's not true. If you serve people, you can go anywhere in the world. And that is what I've learned. When God does something incredible, it's always with the unlikely people. Oh, and I, I am looking at an unlikely person. And I just, I love it. I'd give anything if I could have met you in the 90s when I was uh, doing training, going every once in a while to Australia. To, I love that place. You know, I still, we don't need to talk about it, but I still believe God wants to do something incredible in that country and, and where it's positioned. Hey, for what it's worth, I tried to become a missionary on there on my own. And I'm not teasing you. That's a long story I'll tell you about sometime. So you work with a lot of unlikely people. Totally. I mean, I mean, I love this. See, you ought to be more, you ought to be the norm of what a Christian follower of Jesus is. You're tied to your faith in Jesus. You're a part of a church. You share events where you share the gospel, and yet you're serving everybody, whether they follow Jesus or not. We have a little saying at our church, serve not to convert, serve because you're converted. Yes. And see, I was raised, I was really taught really good how to pimp the gospel. I mean, it started with hot dog suppers and pizza blast. And well, what if somebody didn't accept Christ? Were they still created in the image of God? Did they still have value? So I think much like me, we're not going to go into my story, but you were so separated from your birth tribe that it opens you to the whole world in a way that, man, is incredible. Is it hard for you? Uh, I mean, e even now, I mean, you can't tell me you don't face isolation. I mean, good thing you're Pentecostal, you can be a preacher as Leonard Ravenhill once told me, he said, he went to my dad's church too, but he said, you know, Bob, 
Your Baptists can be missionary women and die, but God forbid God calls them to preach here in America. And he was right. He was he was very right because, you know, um, we my husband and I, um, A21 itself has got 19 offices in 16 countries. And we oversee churches in, in Thessaloniki, Greece, Warsaw, Poland and Sofia, Bulgaria. And I have preached um, in 79 countries. And so it's like. America was sort of the last place I came, not the first. And so I I wasn't even familiar with what it was like here. This is what I found fascinating is that I would preach, let's pick any country, uh, Indonesia, um, South Africa, Romania, Bulgaria. I'll say this to you, Bob, and I would preach on a Sunday and there would be Baptist missionary male pastors that would come. I mean, every, I mean, people were so starving for the word in so many no. that's They would come in if I was in Romania or if I was in Thailand or if I was, you know, in Guatemala. And then it would be so weird in America. And I remember having one conversation with one, and this is, this is what was the deal breaker for me. Um, I didn't at that time even know enough theology to understand. I just kind of, we were so desperate where I was from. Anybody that could talk and had a, was like a woman at the well, um, we, we were like, please go say anything because, you know, beggars cannot be choosers. So it's awesome. So you're just going <laughs> to, and it would be, you know, we would just say, well, if God could use a donkey, God can use anyone. <laughs> that, that was about as theologically robust as we were back then. And it was just like, just do it, you know, whatever. But um, I remember this one conversation. I said, so this is fascinating to me. Over here in Africa or in Romania, you'll come and listen to me on a Sunday Uh, because apparently that's the day that you can't. I said, but what you either, I have to think you honestly do not believe the very thing you preach I would probably have more respect for you if you didn't turn up to listen to me because what you're saying to me by coming in here in Romania or Africa is you are either inferring that a Romanian man or an African man or an Indonesian man is not a man on Sunday here or that Paul, when Paul actually wrote those texts that are so problematic for you in Timothy and, you know, Corinthians, Um, what you must believe is that what Paul was actually writing is that I forbid a woman to teach a man between the hours of 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. in predominantly the southern states of North America, that's when I don't agree that a man should teach a woman. I said I can only deduce those two things um, because I don't understand why you're here otherwise. You know, so so it was like for me just, I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever said that out loud to like this, um, but it, it it wasn't deep, it wasn't theological, but I thought I don't even think you really believe what you're saying or if you did, you couldn't possibly be standing here listening to me yeah. in these countries or you must not think these human beings are actually men. I, I, I don't know what, where to put this. Yeah. Um, I'm a very simple person. My logic is just my reasoning is right there. And then um, I thought that's not a debate. I mean, there are 
hundreds of books written. And of course, right now in American evangelical world, it is the topic of debate. I just settled that in my own heart, you know, 30 years ago. And and it was just, um, it was, I I didn't even... um, overthink it. I've read so many books. The one by Lauren Cunningham, Why Not Women, back then, pretty much still to this day, sums up the major arguments that we're still rehashing today. And I'm like, land wherever you want to land, be consistent in it, but still be a Christian and be loving and be merciful and be graceful. And I say to women now, you know, there's plenty of options today. I'm not out to change anything. Even with the work that I do, I'm really not even out. This is not the hill I'm going to die on um, because it's obvious where I stand. Look what I do. And there's too much. So you, you've got to be obedient to what God's called you That's, to do. There's too much gospel work to be done. Yeah. Um, the, you know, if people want to deny that there's an anointing or a gift on my life to do it, that's fine. Yeah, don't worry and, about it. With God, I've, I'm giving an account for my own life before the Lord. Yeah. Um, my husband. You, you know, Christine, I did not believe in women preachers. As a matter of fact, I was. I'm a personal evangelist. One on one, I lead people to the Lord all the time. And so, when I was a senior in high school, I led this girl to the Lord, and. She wrote me a letter after I'd gone off to college, said, I think God's calling me to be a preacher. And so I wrote her back saying, no, he didn't. You can be a missionary, but not a preacher. And I don't ever know what happened to her, but I would love to find her and go back and say, I'm sorry, because I didn't believe that in in, in my tradition. But my dad would have women preachers in his church. Uh, Bertha Smith would come and preach. Uh, you know, but not a lot, but he would have some. There was an idea that there were a few that were anointed, but the norm was a woman couldn't say anything. That's really problematic. But I stayed that way. And I would look at it biblically. I mean, you know, the classic verses, permit, permit, permit not a woman to speak. Of course, I'd never heard that there were three apostles that were females. I'd never heard about the prophesying daughters of Philip. I never heard about all the passages that talked about women who did preach and did teach. And then something happened to me. As a Baptist, we love the world. I mean, we're committed to missions. Now, we want to reach them over there, not over here. But here's what happened, Christine. I was with another guy from Australia. I don't know if you know Josie Chaco or not, but he's a guy I've known for 20 years. There's this lady, she's dying of a disease in the hospital. They call the Baptist pastor to pray for her. And so he says, I don't even believe in divine healing, but I'll go. So he prays for her and what happens? God heals. And so she says, well, what do I do now? So he just gave her a little New Testament, said, read this. And so he gave her his card and they raised money so they could put her on a bus in India, go back to where she was from. So she goes back and she writes back. The pastor and said, could you come and visit? I've got three something. He couldn't read the numbers. So after two or three years, she keeps writing. And he finally agrees to go to this place where she was to check on her and all these people who have accepted Christ, expecting there to be like 30 people. He gets there. It's nothing but a huge field. And he knocks on a hut. And they said, oh, she's not here right now. She'll be back. This lady had led 30,000 delots to delete to the Lord. 30,000. Oh, come on. Yeah. And so, I mean, what are you going to say? No, God can't use her. I'm sorry, lady. Uh, you know, you don't have the right gender. So too bad. You know, can't grow whiskers, can't preach. And no, I, But look at what she does. Well, that's I started I, meeting more and I said, no, I'm done with this. I don't get it. There's some, it looks like there's some conflicts, but here's what happened. I discovered a new hermeneutical principle. 
Are you ready for this, Christine? I'm ready. Now, this may be heresy. It's going to get me in trouble with some people. If you can build a case for either way, biblically, and you can build a case biblically for women in ministry, you can say it's a weaker case, but there is a legitimate case. Intellectuals, evangelicals believe this, many of them. Then I think you've got to go with what gives most opportunity for the gospel. Looser and set her free, as T.D. Jakes would say. Come on. And Let I, that woman preach. My bottom line is that I was never, and I still don't, um, looking at this as a profession. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a professional. I'm a, I'm, I'm a saved. I'm still, you know, you go to the book of Acts and it's like they looked at, at, at Peter and John and saw that they were unlearned, uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. I still feel like I'm the woman at the well. Jesus, the first time he reveals that he's the Messiah. I mean, he was with Nicodemus in the chapter before. If he wanted to reveal who he was to, to the religious elite, he could have done it in John 3, but he waited till John 4. He tells this woman at a well and her reaction is, I'm just going to go and tell everyone what this man has done and has told me. And I feel for 35 years I have not looked to build a, um, I haven't looked to build a platform. I don't even know what that means. I haven't even looked to build a career. I feel like I'm still running from town to town going, come see a man who told me everything. And then, you know, the scripture says that they came because of her, but they stayed because of him. So yeah. I'm like, I, I want as many around the world, if, whether I'm doing TV, whether whatever I'm doing, they can come because they heard me, but they're going to stay because they've met Jesus. And that's all I care about. And I'm like, y'all can write what you want. Um, I'm not interested. No. I just met Jesus. There's enough precedence in Scripture where God has yeah. And, and we talk about it all. In church history. So we see it. And while everyone, you can either spend the term of your natural life here on this earth arguing about that or going into the highways and byways. I'm like, you um, if the elite, the religious elite don't want, I'm not interested. I'm going to go to the highways. I'm going to go to the byways. I'm going to go invite all the ones that nobody else is inviting. And you know what? That's keeping me so busy. I'm not really interested in all the I'm ways. with you. No, I'm fine. So, so let me ask you a question. So you're, you're Aussie. Yeah. So help us out in America. We have a huge international audience on this podcast, but, but let's talk about America for just a minute. What, what do you think's happened that we've become so rigid and angry and, 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 and just, I don't know, we just have all these rules who gets to preach and what women can do and can't do what, what do you, you've been here, you've watched it. What, what do you think it's about? And I want to be careful because it's generic. The breadth of the American church is, you know, I, I'm, I pretty much probably flow a lot more in streams that, that are not like that. That, that is the truth. That's um, obviously they're the people that would have someone like me. Um, uh, but in, in some of the streams you've been um, associated with. And so again, I speak with, uh, with humility. No, bring it. Don't be and humble. In, in Talk there. to us. Preach it, girl. Tell us what's and, wrong. And Get I've prophetic. Only been, no, I've only been exposed to it more so in the last decade. And the last five years that I've been at Wheaton, I've, obviously that's opened my eyes to a lot more. But I'm not claiming to be an expert. I know I don't have that whole history. But I did come up um, against that resistance from when I even first started coming to America in 1998. It was the only country. It's so weird. And I, I mean, honestly, Bob, I have 
preached in Qatar. I've gone to Dubai. I've gone. I've preached a lot of places. Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation in the world, all through India. I mean, I could name countries where I came up against less of a religious spirit mm-hmm. than I have here in America. It is shocking to me. Um, countries that are overtly not Christian that I've. Um, had less resistance and I could pull out some Pentecostal language, but less of those religious demons in those countries than I have over here, Um, that I have found, here's my little theory, and it it may be wrong, a couple of things. I find that wherever we have tried to silence the voice of the Holy Spirit, we also silence the voice of women. And and I, I find that in those very rigid sectors of the church that, um, either try to control the Holy Spirit, determine when he stopped working, you know, like it all finished in the book of Acts, or it, there is a direct correlation between that and silencing women. It's like, wow, that's that's very interesting. You may have something there. And, and it comes down to this need for control. Then, of course, there is that need to control hierarchy and um, who gets to do what. And the root of it, is because somewhere along the line, you've made yourself the third part of the Trinity and you're just going, anything I don't understand, I am going to control. So whether there's even scriptural passages that might have more nuance than I'm willing to give them, I am just going to be dogmatic because it freaks people out to actually let God be God. Um, it, it's a lot easier if I if I can be God and I can I can speak on behalf of God rather than go, there's a mystery of which Paul says, I'm a steward of the mystery. I mean, I'm like, what more do you want? The apostle himself calls this whole thing a mystery because the gospel is. So I'm not, and I'm not a mystic, but I I am probably the most pragmatic Pentecostal you're ever going to meet. I am way more more a Baptocostal than I am a Pentecostal. Absolutely. I'm all about missions. I'm all about reaching the lost. I'm all about serving the poor and the marginalized. Um, So so I'm curious about this. Unchurched people, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Uh government leaders you work around the world with, do they have a problem with you being a preacher? No. Have they ever said, oh, Christine, uh, you're a Christian preacher. I'm not going to listen to you. Never. Not in my experience thus far. Did, did you know there, there'll be, here's why I invited you to our big event, March 6 and 7. They're fascinated by it. So I've worked with Muslims and imams and rabbis and different kind of Hindu priests, you name it, all over the world, all the time. That, that's where I live most of my life. They're fascinated by it. I mean, they're intrigued by it. So your faith, Bob, women can be preachers. And, and, and they know a little bit that there's controversy over it. People are fascinated that God can speak through unlikely people. So I, I want to ask you something. I'm grateful you're coming. So we're having this big event at Northwood. It's called uh, Global Faith Forum. And uh, Dr. Muhammad Ali, I had some pastors eat lunch with him recently. And I told him, I said, with him there, I said, we're going to have so much fun. And so we had a phenomenal conversation. And he's written a document that says we got to get along and we've got to let people practice their faith. And we need to work together to heal society. You're going to love this, Christine. He says, we need to empower women. Yeah. This is one of the top five Muslim leaders in the world. I have no problem believing that because in so many Muslim countries that Nick and I go to, um, they invite me in both on um, 
for the work we do with A21 and Propel because, I mean, I'm thinking I I had a a meeting at the highest levels in Qatar about how can we implement some Propel programs um, to empower women. We have 100 Propel chapters in Pakistan and talking talking with different um, government officials about, you know, how are we going to help empower women? And, of course, I'm I'm working within their frameworks and within um, structures, but if I can help to make life a little bit better here on earth for people while I'm here, then I'm going to do everything that I can to do that. And no one is silencing me. It's not like um, no one is saying, I can't believe what I believe. So they're not like trying to deny my belief. And Jesus didn't actually ask me to convert anyone. Only the Holy Spirit could do that. So as long as I don't have to be uh, duplicious about what I do believe and that I am always proclaiming the gospel, the good news. God's job is to save people. My job is to both proclaim and be good news. I I don't have. So do they, do they, I'm curious, do they ask you what you believe? Yes, I've had. They want to know what what they ask me. I often will preach in you know small gatherings where there are um, Christians. Um, In Qatar, you have to go into the religious compound. Of course, you can't. They the the religious police come and listen to me preach. So you've got. I've got photo. I'll show you when I'm with you. I've got the religious police in the room with the AK forty sevens listening. At times with tears come strolling down their face because, again, when you share your story, so when I'm talking about me, an unnamed, unwanted, abused, adopted girl that's number 258 of 1966 has encountered Jesus as a result of that new life and healing and wholeness, not only did Jesus rescue me but now gives me the privilege to go and open the prison doors for those that are still bound in slavery, men, women, and children all over the world, and that Jesus sees you, Jesus knows you, Jesus can redeem your past and give you a future, who doesn't want to hear that good news? You you know, I hear how God is using you in such a profound way. I mean, oh, my gosh. I wonder how many other women and young girls there are that God is calling to himself to go after the unlikely, the marginalized, the rejects. How many young Christine Canes are hearing God's voice, and yet some of them are trapped in systems that say, nah, you don't have the right uh, gender, so you can't. I'm convinced Jesus who came to knock down all the walls and the barriers, I don't get what's wrong with us that we want to build them back fast, higher, so that nobody can get over that. It just, it bothers me. When I listen to your story and I hear how God is using you, man, I celebrate that. I mean, I just wonder, what what would some of these pastors who freak out over women preachers, would you like for... Would you like for Christine not to preach? What, you think these people have not accepted Christ? Does it matter that she's serving in the public square and Muslims and other people of other religions are hearing the gospel? Man, I, God forgive us for thinking that we are his Holy Spirit to say who can and who can't. What, is, what would you say to people Uh, We're inviting people to come to this event. You have to register. Uh, There'll be security. Uh, Have to. We have many world leaders. You'll be there with 
uh, Ambassador Brownback and Ambassador Saperstein and the new ambassador for religious freedom, who's a very good friend of mine, Rashad Hussein. He'll be there. Rima Zinat will be there. You're going to have fun meeting her, Christine. She's your equivalent. Uh, she's she's at the uh, University of Chicago, uh, the political school there and works all over the world. David Beasley just won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. He's a close friend. He's been at our church many times. He'll be here. Walter Kim, Association of Events. There'll be tons of people. And you're going you're gonna to be one of the people. He's going to give his address, and then you'll see it. And then you're each going to get a chance to respond. What does it mean? Uh, why are you coming to this? I mean, I'm glad you are. But what is it that made you say? And, it, you know, I mean, everybody, these are world leaders. These are prominent people. And you're doing it. Why? It isn't because of the money. <laughs> no, but I, I'm so grateful you're doing this um, to, to offer hope. If we don't find a way forward in peacemaking, I don't know what the hope of the world is. I mean, of course, Jesus is the hope of the world. We know that. Um, but Paul was in the public square. Jesus was in the public square. I don't know anybody in Scripture that was not in the public square, all the Old Testament prophets. I you know, I'll circle back why I'm coming to the question you asked about the church in America. This kind of um, isolationist theology, um, when Jesus said, be in it, but not of it, my concern in some streams of the American church is that we've become of it, but we're not in it. And oh, so wow. when you become of the world, but you're not in it. So to me, this whole conference is a gathering of being in the world, but not of it. I'm not, and it is fascinating when you become of the world but not in it, then you create this artificial social construct. You give it the name called the church. I'm not convinced that it is. And then all of your time, energy, and resource goes to propping up this artificial institution that you've created. So you've got to put your rules in there. You've got to keep the Holy Spirit out of his own church and you keep yeah. half of the – you mute – um, half of the entire population of this whole church, so then you can continue to control it. But that's not the church that Jesus said, I am building my church and the gates of hell yeah. will not prevail against it. What you're doing um, is going, okay, in the midst of this world, if Jesus didn't want us to be in this world, we'd all be raptured by now. This whole thing would be over. He there would you be go. Back. So the very right. fact that he is not back yet and hasn't raptured means somehow all of the things he's told us to do in this world, we're called to do it. And I believe, to me so far, I've not seen anything in the Western world like what you're doing um, that I think is going to help us uh, be able to live like Christians in this world. So I actually think all believers should come because it's actually going to challenge us to know how to live out our faith in the public square um, and Unfortunately, Christians have not historically been really good humans. We don't know how to be good human beings yeah. in the public square. And I feel wow. like what you're doing is, is, is showing us how to do that. You know, I think even my own parents with just their own background, but they would tell us stories of Alexandria, Egypt, where, of course, you had Coptic Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Muslims. You had everyone living together. And so I grew up thinking it was normal 
to live in peace. And then, in fact, when like what happened with King Farouk in all that time, when that extremism hits and then you start isolating certain groups and coming after them and trying to kill them or destroy them or, you know, get rid of them. Well, I've been on the receiving end of the pain that that causes. I can't believe that that would be God's will for anyone yeah. uh, on this earth. When Jesus comes back to make all things new, to judge the living and the dead, he can take care of the God part of it all. I don't need to play the God part down here. I just need to play my part. And the, I, I believe the scriptures are very clear about what my part is here on earth. I just mm -hmm. don't think Christians are necessarily good humans. We need to become better humans. <laughs> I love it. I love this. I love it. Christians are not good humans. I'm going to tweet that. I just, <laughs> I, I love that. But it's true. It's true. We need to be better humans than what we are. Christine Kane, th this has been incredible. I can't wait. You'll be preaching Sunday morning at our church at 930 and 11. If if some of you men want to uh, sneak in that are nervous about hearing women preachers and and come hear her, you can or you can watch her like I do on TV or or uh, follow her on Twitter or, or Instagram and it'll take you to all those places. I really want to thank you for being on this podcast today. You inspire me. You encourage me. You give me hope. Thank you. It's my honor. And thank you for all that you're doing, Bob. I, 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 this is the most hope I've had in the West for a long time, the work that thank you're you. doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this insightful conversation and storytelling journey here with Pastor Bob. For more information on the podcast, including show notes and links and any references discussed in this conversation today, you can go to boldlovepodcast.com and you can get all the information there. Thank you so much again for joining us. And remember at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Have a great day.